Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Hamilton is facing a new provincial order over the sewage spill into Coots Paradise as 78 million liters of partially treated wastewater was released into Hamilton Harbor during that storm this past weekend. High schools could close tomorrow for a one-day strike if talks don't continue as planned, and the countdown to a possible HSR strike has begun. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Well, clean water. Uh, Hamilton's facing yet another provincial order over the sewage spill into Coots Paradise. As well, uh, yesterday, as a result of that ugly storm that we had over the weekend, 78 million liters of partially treated wastewater has been released into Hamilton Harbor due to the storm over this past weekend. Uh, and there's outrage about that. Uh, that's not unexpected at all. Joining us to talk about uh, both incidents and the uh, the impacts, of course, is uh, Chris McLaughlin, of course, the Executive Director of the Bay Area Restoration Council. Thanks for coming in today. Good to see you again. You too, Bill. Thanks for the invite. Uh, I haven't talked to you for a while, and I was away when this story broke. I was out in Calgary, of course, and, and I've already told our listeners I, I got this from an informed decision. This is going to break in a couple of minutes, and I, I don't think anybody understood the magnitude of it. Uh, but... I want to put this in perspective, and, and that's not to let anybody off the hook on this, because I think we have to, you know, do some analysis as to what went on here. In my opinion, I mean, the fact that the, this went on for four years, and it was billions and billions of liters, is, is problematic, and, and that, I'm understating it, I know. But that's the concern that I have, is it went on for four years, and it, it, this is a matter of oversight. But this is not an exact science, is it? No, not at all. And I'm glad that you opened, first of all, introducing this as clean water. I'm getting tired of talking about sewage. Let's talk about clean water, first of all. Um, secondly, bringing some, some perspective to the, uh, to the conversation is really important. We have a really complex, enormous, largely decrepit old system. There's a lot of technology that, that operates these, um, the equipment that keeps the sewage contained. And there can never be enough people. Um, employed at the city to oversee all of this on a routine basis, that's for sure. And again, like you said, it's not to excuse anything that happen has happened, but we're really in a mood at this point to try and, and, and find a way forward. That's Spark's role is to work with our partner yeah. partners on the remedial action plan to try and find solutions to problems. And if you take take the view that making the world a better place is is always going to be a journey rather than a destination, then we just need to keep striving to do better. That's sort of the theme that I'm taking is we need to keep striving. And, and you know, the province's investigations branch is there to figure out what went wrong and tell us the whole story eventually whenever we receive that report. And it would be nice to have that many months ago. Um, and now the orders from the province coming out that the city is to determine, you know, the extent, extent of the damage and come up with a plan moving forward. That's all very welcome news for sure. Um, but this is an ongoing story that's evolving. And, and uh, you know, I think what you said, perspective, let's let's get a better understanding of, of what we're talking about in the first place. Well, in all the years I've known you, uh, I mean, you've been a great champion for, for the environment and for what's going on with ecosystems in, in the Bay and, of course, at Coots Paradise. But you've also looked at this and understood that, okay, these are the parameters that we're working in. And they're not perfect. So there are going to be screw-ups from time to time. And uh, and I don't think we're ever going to get to a point, Chris, where we're going to say, that's it, we've solved it, there's no more pollution going into that. You know, the old phrase, you know what happens from time to time. But it's what we do to deal with it and how we do it, try to mitigate that. And I think that's where the discussion has to go here. Yeah, absolutely. I think if in, in a year or two, if we don't see the agencies and the city in particular putting into place the, the processes, uh, the procedures needed to improve the situation that everybody's upset about now, 
then I'll be outraged as well. It's under, it, it is understandable, not excusable. And I think that's an important yeah. distinction, right? It's understandable how something like this can happen. And my, my wife had a great analogy. We were sitting there and I was asking her what she said, when was the last time you were on the roof? Um, I don't remember I've ever been on the roof. But I said, how would you know it's leaking? Well, you're going to have a big brown patch on your ceiling, yeah. right? That's how you're going to know your roof is leaking. And sometimes that just happens. And if it happens because Hamilton water is missed, a gate being open, my understanding is, again, not to excuse, but to understand, my understanding is that apparently uh, the, 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 the equipment, the computer equipment didn't pick up. It, it signaled green when it should have signaled red. Yeah. And, you know, that's not prompting someone to climb down in there necessarily and inspect it physically. That's my understanding. And I, I could prove to be wrong on that, um, as we all could, right? I think a little bit of, of grace and appreciation for the complexity of the situation here is due. And allowing Hamilton, the city, that is, to come up with a, a proper response. I think it's imperative that they do that. That would be my advice to them is to, is to take a leadership role on that. And I think that that would serve them really well. And the ecosystem and the public now would be really well served by that kind of leadership. Yeah, and that's the political response. And I think that's what has really got a lot of people upset. And I think there's a lot of justification for that, too. The fact that they basically sat on this information. Uh, and and it seems as if they've corrected that. Uh, there's going to be more oversight. There's going to be more transparency with this sort of thing. Uh, but as you were saying, just, just before we started the segment here, put yourself in that room. Uh, with those other counselors. And, and I know that, you know, the first impression is to say, well, this is a very covert operation. But first of all, I would venture to say of the 16 people there, the elected officials, maybe one or two of them know a little bit about wastewater and, and waste management. I, 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 and I'm just, I'm not an engineer and most of them aren't. Okay. So they're, they're flying blind here. So they're relying on the expertise of staff and a lawyer who is saying, you better not say this. Whether that's right, good advice or bad advice, you figure, oh, gee, if I say, okay, I'm going to break ranks and do this, and all of a sudden the city is, is in a, a huge liability, then you're going to feel responsible and you're going to be blamed for this. And I'm not suggesting that that justifies their, their, their silence on this, but I'm saying there were probably an awful lot of conflicted people in that room that day. Oh, I don't doubt that, that it's a very conflicted conversation. Uh, it's also in the context of the Red Hill report uh, on the pavement issue yeah. that had already and had obviously a deadly consequences for people, right? And so in that context, this fits a model that people have been following, whether it's one issue or another. And unfortunately, that has really fueled the flames here. And, and combine that with a general uh, lack of appreciation for the, how the system functions as a whole. So for example, in social media, over the last several days, I've noticed people using the present tense as if we just found out last Wednesday that the sewer was overflowing at all. And in fact, from I was quite surprised to see the whole thing blow up at, at first because I thought, wait a second, that we dealt with that two summers ago. Like, why is this happening now? Which is an excellent question for the people at the city who are responsible for you know making decisions around the horseshoe and communicating out to the public. Why on earth was this allowed to blow up a year and a half later? Why weren't steps taken in the interim to deal with this uh, more proactively? If that's a... If that's an outcome from that, if that's the teachable moment for the city, so to speak, um, bring it on. Um, you know, it's funny because I use I saw in the articles around the, the the bypass of the plant, for example, which occurs because the plant is a is a great big biology project. Basically, yeah. there's biology involved. There's um, the breakdown of material that's in the sewage by other active bio living things. 
and it can only go so fast. And if it's if pe- people don't stop flushing the toilet when it's raining or when it's the ice is melting as it was on Sunday, a huge volume of materials filling up the system and backlogging at the plant. And let's just start uh, with- Almost twice the capacity. Absolutely, right? And so you have this huge volume that's all over the city. If you just think of the bird's eye view, think of flying in ac- over the city, right? And looking down on water everywhere. Everyone can agree, please don't let it go back into my, fill my house. Please don't let it fill my house. If we all can start there, now what do we do? Getting back to your original point about, boy, are we ever going to be able to keep all of this stuff out of the rivers and, and out of the harbor? Probably not. Should we keep striving to do better, to get more provincial and federal money? Absolutely. To monitor water quality and inform the public of where, when it's safe and when it's not? Absolutely. But to think that somehow, you know, we can achieve perfection is, is, is not realistic, certainly under the certain circumstances. But let's first understand what happened and when it happened and what the impacts were. And that's a little bit about what the latest provincial uh, order to the city is getting at also. Coming up with a report about the damage that was done, bring that on. Coming up with a monitoring program to, to track, better track uh, water quality, bring it on. You know what that sounds like? That sounds to me like a perfect model that needs to be applied to all the rivers and streams that flow into the harbor. That would be fantastic. And, and I mean, we can't, and again, this, this is, the, the, the one that happened this past weekend is, for instance, as you mentioned, these, this is an unusual weather circumstance. Uh, as I say, twice it was faced with twice the capacity that it's usually supposed to have. Uh, I, somebody tweeted me this morning and says, why don't I just build a bigger tank? Well, that, the cost of that would be astronomical. And it would not be efficient because most of the year it's going to sit half empty or a, three, or a quarter empty because we don't need that capacity except for these exceptional circumstances. It comes back to, you know, you said earlier, we damned if you do and if you don't, right? Years ago, the decision was taken in the light of decreasing water consumption, and which on its face is a good thing, but when you realize it's because industry was leaving this city. Um, so when, when large industry leaves an industrial city, that's not a good thing for the workforce, obviously, for the, my fellow citizens. Um, but water consumption was dropping. So the, the decision was made, we're going to spend a fortune upgrading our wastewater treatment plant at Woodward Avenue. Yeah, yeah. Do we put that money into capacity or do we put it into tr- the level of treatment? The decision was taken with excellent information and a very thorough, thoughtful process. We're going we're gonna to reduce the amount of increase the... the we're not going to increase the capacity of the of the plant itself because we've got trending, we've got decreasing water uh, consumption. So if you've got in- decreasing water consumption, you've got less water going through this, the system, uh, the wastewater system. And so we're going to put more of that into uh, treatment. <clears throat> what you're going to find when the upgrades, <clears throat> excuse me, what you're going to find when, you, when the upgrades to Woodward Avenue are complete in 2022 is that in fact, the, lim- the limits on phosphorus, which is the buffet that, that algae feast on yeah. in the summertime, the limits for phosphorus are going to be below the final wrap, the remedial action plan target for the whole harbor. Meaning, very bizarrely, that treating wastewater in Hamilton Harbor for the first time in 150 years is actually going to be a benefit to overall water quality. It's astounding. And everybody across the board, everybody in- in- involved in the wrap, agrees from the fisheries people to the biological bit to the water quality people to everyone agrees that that is going to be a benefit across the board. And so, you know, we're looking forward to that happening in the interim though, we still have uh, 
releases like we did on Sunday with these notices. And I see a lot of people throwing up their hands, uh, particularly on social media, which I try to stay away from in the last 10 days. Um, people throwing up their hands, you know, here we go again already, right? No, no, no. That's not how the system works, okay? It's designed to do that because otherwise it fills my house and it fills your house. Yeah, and we've seen that happen before when uh, when that capacity is reached and all of a sudden it starts backing up into your basement. Absolutely. And anybody who's experienced that knows exactly what we're talking about. We don't mean there's a little leak on the floor. You've got a geyser going up and, and there's not a whole lot you can do about it. It comes to the side door, you know, where you can turn to go to the kitchen or you can go to the, the basement. It's it's right up there. It's, it's ruined everything. Um, it's dangerous because human sewage has bacteria, viruses, uh, parasites, you know, it's, 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 un, it's not fit for human health, right? Um, and there's a reason why we try hard to get as much of that contained and taken down for treatment. But the system we're dealing with is imperfect. And we're doing the best that we can. You know, it's interesting that I've, I saw the article about Sunday's release of the bypass of the plant quoted, you know, partial treatment. Well, partial treatment used to be full treatment. So let's, this is what's most frustrating to me, is that the national news is picking this up, right? Global affiliates across the country are picking up this story, and they're telling this, they're telling this crappy story, literally, about Hamilton Harbor for two or three minutes. So, you know, if we're going to make the national news about something going on in Hamilton Harbor, I want it to be about Randall Reef. I want it to be about the, 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 the project there to contain that toxic sediment. That's nearing completion. I want it to be about, in another three years, we're going to have one of the best wastewater treatment plants in the country. That's what I want the story about. And what's the story again? It's about how bad things are in Hamilton Harbor. And that's profoundly disappointing because... But, you know, you made a very good point. And, you know, I'll go back to my time on council. This partial treatment used to be the standard. So, I mean, the story here, yes. and, and again, I'm not trying to be one of these glasses half full guys, but it's worth noting here. That shows how far we've improved the water quality and the, the treatment here because what got dumped in there used to be good enough, and it's not anymore. And this this happens from time to time. What I'm pleased about, I'm not pleased that that this happened. I'm not pleased that stuff got dumped in here, but it was reported right away. And I think that was one of the things that really concerned people is don't, don't, you know, shove this in the dark. Talk to us about this. We want to be partners in this. This is our, our water system. It's our ecosystem. 100%. And, and the city's not a chemical company, right? And so if the, 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 the spectator building was an actual in, in industrial, like a chemical company, and they found out that for four years they were leaking something in there, what would the city's response have been? Obviously very different, right? And the river doesn't belong to the city either. It's our river. Yeah. And so... In, in a sense, you know, for people to say, how dare you, is completely justified. Um, you're absolutely right that it used to be that partial treatment today used to be full treatment, right? And so in the, in the, in the, in the context of, you know, continually striving to do better, what we want are healthy streams, bottom line, healthy streams. So let's work towards that together. That's that's basically where we're our starting point. Well, let's uh, let's stay in touch as uh, we go through this process. Always great to get your perspective, Chris. Thanks a lot for coming in today. My pleasure, Bill. Thanks. Chris McLaughlin from the Bay Area Restoration Council. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, school may be out tomorrow, at least uh, high school anyway. Uh, the uh, that's the day. Obviously, the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation has uh, chosen for a uh, one-day, uh, well, strike, uh, use whatever terminology you want. The fact of the matter is, is if uh, the teachers don't show up for work, uh, the school's probably going to be closed down. But they're not the only board 
or the only association rather that's in this situation. Uh, the Elementary School Teachers Federation is is along that path as well. The uh, elementary and Catholic high schools uh, teachers are also. Uh, in that position. They're on various forms right now of contract negotiations that are not going well, and so are the French teachers, for that matter, too. Uh, Harvey Bischoff is the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to give us an update on what might be happening. Harvey, thanks for the time on a busy day. I, uh, I'd like to think you're sitting there waiting for the phone to ring from the education minister. We're, you know, we're actually in the hotel. Okay. Uh, it's a day scheduled for bargaining, and we are ready to bargain at any time. I actually wish, wish the minister himself uh, would reach out. Of course, uh, he hasn't, but I would take that call in an instant. Absolutely. Uh, except, uh, just looking on social media, there's still an awful lot of, uh, of, of political bombast that seems to be going on here, and I don't know if that's uh, having an impact on the negotiations at all. You know, I've been very, very disappointed by the uh, minister's efforts to to ratchet up um, the temperature on this, to create anxiety for for parents and and students. It's unproductive at this time. Um, every you know, uh, uh, kind of level cal- level headed, calm approach would be a lot more helpful. But the minister instead wants to engage in spin um, and and you know, raising the temperature. And, and that's the politics of it, and I find that very frustrating as well. As, as you and I have talked about in the past, I've had the minister on the program a, a few times, and he seems like a very bright individual. And he's young, and he's new to the relatively new to the post, and you figure, okay, he's going to try to make a difference. But, Harvey, you've seen this happen over the years. It doesn't really matter who you put in these positions. Uh, when they get to the bargaining table, they're, they're handed, okay, here's, here are your ten talking points. You stick to that stuff, okay, because that's what we want out of this. And it's, it's not really productive, and it lead, well, leads to situations like we're in today. It's true, and, and I think what's happening to this minister is he's trying to sell the Ford education agenda, and frankly, nobody's buying it. And so, therefore, instead of being able to tell the truth, he has to engage in spin. And how do we know nobody's buying it? Well, uh, on the weekend, we found out unequivocally that parents, according to the government's own consultation that they tried desperately to hide, um, parents don't support bigger class sizes. They don't support mandatory e-learning. And so while the minister's been running around claiming he listens to parents, his own consultation told them the exact opposite of what they're doing. And frankly, we have polling that, that aligns entirely with the ministry consultation. The Ontario Public School Boards Association has polling that shows exactly the same thing. So here you have a guy trying to sell a, you know, it's, it's a product that, that nobody's interested in, and therefore uh, he's engaged in this spin and rhetoric. And we talked about this when those announcements were made, and that's almost a year ago now. And uh, uh, the accusation that I heard back from an awful lot of people that were supportive of what Ford was doing was, oh, this is abstract, that's what if, maybe this is going to happen. Well, since this school year has started, uh, parents and teachers and, and people that are educators in this province have got first-hand knowledge about how this is going to impact the system, and they're not pleased with it, and they're not impressed with it. Well, we've already seen, you know, so last year average class sizes were 22. This year the government unilaterally raised them to 22 and a half. And what's been the result? Kids in classes, in individual classes of 40 and more, because that 22 and a half is an average. Um, kids who can't get access to the credits that they need even to graduate, because when you raise the average class size, it means laying off teaching positions. Um, and uh, and so, so from this stage, the minister wants to raise the class size further yet to 25 to 1. Imagine um, with this small increase, uh, you've seen the damage already done, and he wants to go 
much, much further. Um, imagine how bad things would be in a few years if we allow that to happen. Well, and we've seen some other incidents, too. And We talked with the chair of the Hamilton board here, and, and I know you've had these discussions with some of your, your members as well about how this is impacting. Uh, and and one of the things that I, I've always, and I talked about this on my, my commentary this morning, uh, the focus here when we talk about a more efficient system, I was under the impression a more efficient system meant a system that better equips students for the future and, and for post-secondary education. Uh, their idea of an efficient system seems to be a less expensive, cheaper system. And, and th- th- those 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 two goals here, and I understand, look, at we just can't keep throwing money at problems, Harvey, but the reality here is that if you put that as a priority above a, a system that's going to be better for students, I, as, a, as a taxpayer, i got a problem with that. Well, investing in, the, in, the, in education um, is different from throwing money at a problem, right? So when you put money into education, it, there's a return on investment, uh, both for individuals and for the broader economy. Um, and, you know, you and I have, uh, we've talked before that, that uh, over the last 16 years, uh, Graduation rates were raised by 20%. One out of five more students prepared to go into post-secondary or take on a skilled trades apprenticeship. So that's a real improvement. That's good for kids. It's good for Ontario's economy. Overnight, the results of the PISA testing, this is an international assessment of students, um, came out. And they show that Ontario ranks extremely well based on on um, data that was collected before the Ford government was elected. Uh, Ontario does extremely well in terms of reading, um, math, science, and we stack up uh, remarkably well against the, whole, the rest of the world. Um, that's what allows Ontario to be internationally competitive in business, um, you know, and that's, that's the basis on which we should be going forward, not on the basis of short-term uh, cuts. Uh, short-sighted cuts, I would say. There seems to be, and, and let's put this on the table, because I don't think anybody on the government side wants to do this, but I'm, I'm just, as an observer, want to bring this up. One, of course, is, is quality of education. And, and I, I feel, and, and I've gone on record as saying this, that I think that the government's uh, first priority here is just to save money. And they'll do that with health care, they'll do that with education, they'll do that with anything, just to lower their bottom line. That seems to be a priority. The other one that seems to be at play here is that there is a propensity with this government, Harvey, to simply blow up anything that the previous government did without even a back plan, a backup plan, and just kind of cobble something together. But they do that cobbling without consultation with the stakeholders, whether it's healthcare, education, or uh, autism, anything else like this. And that's what gets them into these 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 scenarios where their backs are against the wall, really. This is I and mean, the autism program is one of the one of the most stark examples of that. They they took a program that had been crafted over some years, recrafted in order to try to meet the needs of kids, um, uh, you know, uh, with autism. They came in, they blew it up. They they what they said about what they were doing, you know, turned out to be absolutely not the truth. And a whole lot of kids and parents suffered because of uh, a ham-fisted approach to doing government policy. We can't afford that kind of approach. You know, it's what they're doing with, with e-learning. Um, there's no evidence whatsoever to demonstrate that mandatory e-learning is good for students. The minister points to Alabama as his model, which ranks 49th out of 50 uh, in American education quality. And clearly, the only explanation for pursuing mandatory e-learning with class sizes of 35 students is to reduce the cost in the education system. It certainly doesn't improve quality. Yeah, for this, of course, from the premier that said not one person was going to lose their job because of these uh, these new policies they put in place. I, I know that ship has sailed, and I know some people simply dismiss that and say, well, all politicians exaggerate. 
that matters when you say something like that, when you make a bold statement like that. And, and on the other side of the, of the, the ledger, of course, you see the, the, the people that have been laid off. And, and, and I'm concerned because I've heard from parents, Harvey. I mean, you know, we, our, our kids are long past high school age. I mean, but the ones that are still there are worried now about what's going to happen uh, with graduation, what's going to happen with their entry into post-secondary edu- ed- institutions right now, because some of the courses that they th- are told they need to have b- to be able to qualify for those post-secondary courses may not be available to them. Absolutely, and and they're still talking about raising the average class size uh from here by, by uh, you know, a significant percentage. And, you know, not only did the Premier claim that there would be no layoffs, and that turned out not to be true, nobody once during the campaign, no, no Conservative during the campaign said that they were going to pursue mandatory e-learning, bigger class sizes, uh, the elimination of support staff positions who work with our, you know, uh, caring professionals who work with our high needs and at-risk students, there was not one word of that during the campaign, and now they're pursuing it uh, truly without a mandate. Let's let's talk about public perception here, and and you know, I, and again, I know people don't like to go back to the Harris days and the confrontations that happened back in those days, but b- for the, the good or evil, it seemed as if there was a lot of support. First of all, Harris had a very high public approval rating uh, in the province when he started to, to basically go to war with the teachers' unions and. Uh, uh, so there was some public support for that. I, I don't necessarily see that happening in this situation because I'm talking to a number of parents, Harvey, whose whose children are being impacted by this, and they're saying, "Look at this is it." And you just referenced the study that the government did themselves uh, that they're reticent to hold you know the results and and make those public. But the fact of the matter is, is the public I think is more aware now of the education system and the impact that changes like this are going to have. And they're not simply going to buy, a, I think, a philosophical uh, bent on this right now. They want something that's going to help their kids. I think that's exactly right. So, you know, the Harris government was mean-spirited, but they were they were more clever in the way they, they uh, went after the education system. They spent months demonizing uh, educators and so forth before before they started their cuts. This ham-fisted government went after the very things that parents and students care about the most, you know, a quality of education environment, uh, which is related so much to to having reasonable class sizes and students having access to the professional attention they need to succeed. Um, it, you know, having having the number of educators, support staff, and teachers in the system, this, this government went right after those things, uh, and therefore parents have reacted. And I've never seen a time... Um, when parents have been so, and, and the general public, I would say, so clearly aware of the destructive path that a government is going down uh, with regard to education and so clearly opposed to it. I want you to address a couple of the talking points that I've seen uh, that have been prevalent on those who take the government's side and, and, and are, are, well, not enamored with the teachers right now. And you've heard these over the years here. Are, you know, when you look at these, you know, greedy teachers, you know, this is all about them. They just want more money. It's, it's just, you know, these guys, as, as one email from a couple of days ago to me, uh, one of them said, look, these guys all make 150000 bucks a year and they get the summers off. What's the big deal? You know, what are they complaining about? Well, they don't make 150000 but but uh, nevertheless, here's, here's some context for that. First of all, a teacher over the course of, career, of their career, net of the cost of their education, because of course they spend six years in university minimum in order to qualify to teach, net of the cost of their education, career earnings are about the same as a skilled tradesperson earns over the, over the course of a career. Now, skilled tradespeople absolutely earn their money, um, 
but I believe my members do as well. And then you look at what we're proposing. We're saying after seven years of falling behind inflation year after year, so in real terms, having less money in their pockets uh, each year, we're proposing a cost of living adjustment. We're saying my members deserve to keep up with inflation. We're not even proposing a catch-up. We're saying that from here on in, their, their uh, increases should be pegged to the cost of living, uh, to, you know, a consumer price index, um, and so that, just, so that next year in real terms they're, they're earning what they earn this year. In July, the provincial government, which sets the, uh, the allowable rent increases that, uh, that landlords can charge, gave landlords the ability to raise rent by 2.2%. They said that was uh, equal to the cost of living. I, I understand uh, that thinking, but why should it apply to one segment and not to my members? Well, because they've made a blanket statement that said that anybody in public sector, and that includes obviously teachers, uh, you're only going to get a 1% raise, which, as you say, is, is nowhere near the cost of living increase. That's right. And, and, and so once again, you know, you have a minister who runs around talking to, uh, talking, uh, claiming that they're engaged in good faith bargaining while they're legislating, uh, part of the, part of the, the bargaining, what should be a bargaining outcome. So there's no good faith when you unilaterally impose cuts on the number of support staff and teachers, when you unilaterally impose mandatory e-learning, uh, and when you legislatively interfere with the free collective bargaining process to pretend that's, that's good faith bargaining is, well, bad faith, I guess. Well, it's, it's playing with numbers that really frustrates an awful lot of people, and that's part of the feedback I'm getting here. Uh, you know, when, when they were elected, they ballooned this, the, the size of the deficits and, and said it's way bigger than the, the, the wind government ever said it was. And they used that as a justification for some of these draconian moves that they're doing. Well, the Auditor General has already spoken up and said that's, that's BS. It, it, the, the deficit's nowhere near as big as that. Yet they continue along this path. They've had to walk back the autism. They've had to walk back some of their health care proposals. Uh, but they seem to have drawn a line in the sand here. And, and I don't know to what end, because, I mean, I, I don't see anybody budging here, and I don't see parents uh, starting to, to feel as if maybe the government's doing the right thing. I don't see how these guys have any credibility left when it comes to talking about numbers. At one time, they claimed it would be about 3,500 teaching positions lost. The Financial Accountability Office turned around and said, no, the number is 10,000 teaching positions lost. As you said, there were those deficit figures they talked about, and now the minister is running around claiming that we're, that, that my union is looking for a $1.5 billion compensation increase. Um, he's, he's not even in the right order of magnitude, um, but, you know, by now people should be aware that, uh, that they simply have no credibility with any numbers that they point to. Where's this going to go? I mean, let's assume nothing's going to happen. I hope it does today. I hope there's, there's some sort of a, an agreement that maybe this, this thing can be rectified. But if we go forward with this tomorrow, we've already reported last week that there's already some talk that there could be another one of these days sometime next week and maybe another one even before Christmas. Uh, but you've got your companion unions, the elementary teachers and the Catholic teachers, high school and elementary, and the French teachers that are all going down the same road here. Uh, the worst-case scenario could be catastrophic here. You know, the worst-case scenario is that the government gets to impose all of these these draconian cuts on the education system, and our kids suffer for years and years to come, uh, and our economy suffers because we don't have the same kind of high-quality graduates that we're currently able to, to turn out who, who compete um, in the international world, uh, and uh, and so that would be that would be the worst possible outcome. But it is absolutely the case. Well, you know, the minister, he wants to point at my union and say we're somehow outliers. 
Uh, fact is, he has not made, been able to make a deal with my union, the elementary teachers, the Catholic teachers, the Francophone teachers, and all of the other unions that represent education workers in this province. So there is a common denominator in this equation, but it's the minister. Well, uh, here's hoping the phone rings, and here's hoping that there could be uh, some honest dialogue here. Like I say, just let's get rid of the bombast, and let's have the common goal of trying to make a better education system. Not necessarily a less expensive one, but a more efficient one for the students and for everybody involved. And that's got to start at the ministry. I mean, the ball's in their court right now, I would think. We're at the hotel and ready to talk, Bill, and I hope that we, you know, something productive arises today, and, and if it does, we will be all over it and try to pursue it to a, to a successful conclusion. We'll be watching, too. Harvey, thanks as always for this. Appreciate the time today. My pleasure. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Harvey Bischoff, who was the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation, and, and we've talked with Earl Manners from the Elementary School Teachers Federation and, and, and the Catholic boards as well, or the Catholic associations as well, uh, and it's problematic. And, you know, I mean, I, I understand the government's idea to hold the line, so you're only going to get a 1% increase if there's going to be any salary increase at all. And uh, and that's, okay, that's playing hardball, I guess, to try to do this. But, I mean, this is the same government that turned around just a couple of weeks ago and gave uh, legislative assistance, parliamentary assistance, a 14% raise at Queen's Park. So, you know, this is this do as I say, not what I do is is somewhat problematic. And I guess it's got a lot of people saying, hey, why is there a double standard here? Anyway, uh, at the 11th hour, they seem to, to put an agreement together with the, the support workers in the education system, and it was literally at the 11th hour. He was hoping they can find some sort of middle ground uh, with those negotiations today, and we'll let you know as soon as that happens, if it happens. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We were just talking about the possibility of disruptions in the education system, uh, which we hope aren't going to happen, but they seem to be heading down that road. Uh, we have another concern right here in the Hamilton area, and that is transit. Uh, as we've been talking about here on this program, uh, negotiations have been underway sometime now between the uh, HSR and the city for a new contract. Uh, apparently, they have had some resolution on some issues, but, well, stop you if you've heard this before, money seems to be a stumbling block. Uh, they have filed a no-board report, which means e- as of December 19, uh, they could be in a strike position if they so chose. Uh, city Council, well, they're not doing the, the bargaining, but they're certainly going to be impacted by this and going to have to make some decisions on this. Uh, Terry Whitehead is uh, the councillor, of course, who's been on this council for a long, long time over on the West Mountain. Uh, been there, done that, I guess, with an awful lot of these things. And I think we just lost him on the line here, so we'll try to get him back uh, and get his read on what's going on. It's been a long time since there has been a labor disruption and, and a transit strike in this city. And uh, coincidentally, or maybe not coincidentally, the last time it happened, it was over the Christmas season. Uh, back in the late 1990s, and yeah, it did have a direct impact, a huge impact, obviously, on people that rely on public transit to get from point A to point B. And uh, well, the system is uh, more complicated, more complex than it was even back in those days. So to suggest that uh, that there are going to be some serious ramifications if we go down that road, uh, I think would be an understatement at this stage. And we've talked with Eric Tuck, who is the, the president of the ATU local uh, here, and uh, they they say, look, they're trying to bargain in good faith here, but you know they, they do what every other union does, is they look at, okay, what are people in other communities getting uh, vis-a-vis wages, benefits, et cetera, and why can't we get that sort of thing? I mean, that seems to be the crux of what's going on. I think we've got Councillor Whitehead with us finally. Terry, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us on the program today. 
Oh, it's great to be here with you, Bill, and your listeners. Terry, as I mentioned, I'm the city councilors, of course, are not at the bargaining table here. That's You've got staff that will do that, and, of course, the union has their representatives. Uh, but if there's a problem, you guys are certainly going to wear it. And, and I know you were at City Hall back in the days uh, when that last transit strike happened in the late 1990s, and it was a messy affair, an awful lot of people were negatively impacted by this. And, and notwithstanding the fact that you as a councillor don't do any of the negotiations, you know that if this happens, you're the one that's going to get the phone call say, hey, fix this, Terry, solve this. Well, absolutely. But, I mean, uh, we know through competitive studies and uh, and looking where – uh, Hamilton is, and, and we have one of the largest senior populations, people without index pensions, that uh, taxes are very important. Uh, and and uh, as you start increasing taxes, you're putting more and more pressure on many senior companies. So there's a balance that needs to be struck, and, uh, and the council is determined to, to strike it. We've also had a report come back, competitive study report, that at one point showed us we we're 15% above the provincial average. Currently, I think we're probably hovering around 6 so we've come a long way uh, last several years. We've been the second uh, uh, lowest uh, uh, tax increases in Ontario with all our competitors. So, you know, this, this, this council is determined to ensure that uh, we provide uh, value for dollar uh, in our community and, and treat all our unions uh, with equity and fairness. And, and I know you've had good luck in the past with public service workers, uh, and, and when those contracts have come up, I don't think anybody ever got everything that they wanted, but there seemed to be some resolution, and everybody walked away thinking they got something out of this. Uh, this one seems a little bit different because there's an attitude here now, I think, uh, uh, even among councillors, I think, Terry, that, look, at tra- transit is a priority. Uh, and finally, after all those years of, of, of pleading with the federal government and even to a certain extent the, fe- the provincial government uh, about transit money, it seems as if it's starting to flow, not to the extent that you'd like to see it flow, uh, but you know, there's there's enhancements that are coming along. Uh, there's the there's new buses being purchased. Well, of course, we've got the LRT project here in the city. Which, oh, even though we haven't put a shovel in the ground yet, uh, a strike uh, would would be problematic, obviously, given the momentum that seems to be moving with uh, with public transit here in Hamilton. Well, I mean, any strike, a, a, a major service in your community uh, could be devastating, especially for those that uh, is the only means of uh, transportation in your community. Uh, and that's a fair comment. Uh, having said that, I believe that the, uh, uh, I, I want to put, first of all, I want to put my ha- hat out, and I know the council feels the same way. We have uh, uh, many drivers and workers within the HR system that punch much above their, their weight class. They are the premium of uh, the service delivery in the community, and we're proud of each and every one of them to deliver the service. I also want to send a, a very strong uh, message and, and, and thank a respectful message to the union, uh, uh, the president, and the negotiating team that have been uh, a stellar uh, forthright in uh, representing their membership, and, and, and the membership should be proud of their uh, representation. And back to our own team, uh, the staff team, that uh, we provide direction, as we have done with every other union, uh, in regards to the, uh, what is affordable in our community, and uh, we have every trust and faith in our negotiating team to get the job done. Terry, is there a template that the city is using here vis-a-vis a salary and, and, and benefit packages right now? Is there a ceiling that you've established? Well, we do that with all uh, uh, unions. We look at affordability. Uh, we look at uh, fairness and equity uh, right across the board. And this council is pretty resolved in ensuring that we treat all our unions with fairness. So when you talk about looking at outside of our community, I mean, cost of inflation and so many different factors from community to community to community, that's not a fair comparison. I mean, I think we need to take a look at how we're treating our workers here in Hamilton relative to the cost of living uh, and many other issues that uh, impact Hamiltonians. 
Well, I, I wanted to get your read on that because we've heard this from other unions, including public service workers and, and even police services when they're into their negotiations. Uh, and you've been down this road so many times. You know that what they do is 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 they get, okay, what's happening in Halton? What's happening in, in Toronto? What's happening in Niagara, Ottawa, com- comparable cities, things of this nature? Uh and, and then say, look, if they're getting that, why can't we get this? Sometimes it's equal to that. Sometimes it might be a little bit more because this is a bigger city with maybe a more complex transit system. Is is that fair to, to the negotiating team? Is that an apples-to-apples comparison? Well, I, I don't think it is. I think if you take in the uh, cost of living in each of those communities and, and then uh, prorate that on the salary, you find out that uh, uh, the media workers are very competitive uh, across Ontario uh, as, as far as where we are and the population or community service that we deliver. So, I mean, uh, if, if we, we close a blind eye and, and say uh, we should be paying the same wages as, as uh, uh, people in Toronto, uh, you look at housing prices and cost of living, um, you know, then basically uh, uh, the, 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 that would create an unfairness to the Toronto workers who, in fact, uh, uh, have these huge costs that uh, are being borne by other workers across the province of Ontario. Terry, is is the city's position here to try to be conciliatory here, or to be confrontational and simply say, "Look, this is the bottom line here." Well, no, no. I, I want to make it clear that uh, confrontation is never uh, a winning formula. Uh, we need to work, uh, and like I said, we have the deepest respect for the union and uh, and, and their uh, desire to do the best they can for their, their workers, and that's their job, and we respect that, and we also respect the fact that. Uh, uh, there's a domino and ripple effect on any decisions that are being made because we've taken a, a approach to uh, what is affordable in our community and uh, applied that across the table. So if you break that, uh, then basically it, it becomes a domino effect right across the board. By the way, I want to correct myself. I keep referring to that strike back in the late 1990s as the city's negotiations. In, in fact, it was the regional government because we still had regional government back then, and, and transit was a regional issue. Uh, and if I recall... And I believe that actually the region locked the, the workers out uh, because they drew a line in the sand and the workers refused uh, and, and turned down that offer. Uh, I'm, not yeah, so sh- I'm not so sure if that was a great strategy because that went on for quite some time. I wasn't a counselor at the time, but I know that we had some pretty powerful counselors uh, that were very tied to labor movement. Uh, people like Andrew Harvin, for example. And I remember uh, that there was, of course, I probably was working for Bart Morrow as a chief of staff at the time. I suspect what, uh, what was happening is is that uh, there was messages being delivered uh, to the union at the time through uh, councils, and I believe the union had a lot more faith and trust in uh, to understand the resolve of council or, or the regional council of the day based on all the other pressures that the regional council was facing. And, and as I say, that dragged out over the Christmas season. Uh, it was uh, somewhat problematic, and, and if I recall... Uh, when they finally did settle and, and they accepted the contract, it was essentially the same contract that they turned down uh, back in December. And and, uh, and that's not a reflection on them. I think that's a reality. And, and Terry, you've been involved in labor negotiations most of your career. Uh, so you understand that this is not the 1940s or 50s right now where there are going to be huge strides and huge gains in, in strike action. Invariably, uh, when there is a strike and there was finally a settlement, uh, the settlement numbers are usually very close to the, to the last offer that was made. Well, and I think that's what the obviously the union will have to wait. I mean, I was a union uh, uh, vice president and grew salmon on the negotiating team for many years with the steelworkers in Northern Ontario. I remember uh, uh, the Office of Technical for supporting uh, their contract, and then the hourly, uh, uh, which was much larger, and did not. And it was virtually the same type of increases. Uh, so we went on, on, on strike. We went on strike for four or five weeks. Uh, and uh, what we garnered from that strike was uh, an extra pair of boots. 
And uh, when you take a look at the wages that were lost over that period of time, there was no real uh, uh, value add or, or gain uh, those uh, uh, achieved by the, the, the union. Uh, and they would never catch up with the value of the dollars they lost over that strike period. So you have to be careful with these things. There's, there's, there's significant impacts to many of those uh, uh, families uh, going into Christmas, uh, a lot of impacts to the, the people that they serve. Uh, and there's even relationship issues that uh, uh, can be... Um, be impacted in regards to the drivers and, and the workers when they come back. So uh, there's there's broad implications uh, when uh, a strike is considered, I, and I know the union is considering those broad implications, and I know that the, uh, the union, as they have always done, will do the responsible thing. Well, and the, on the other side of the coin, of course, there's, there's a, a risk to the city here as well, because when there has been a labor stoppage in the past with transit, and this is the case not just in Hamilton, but just about every other city, Invariably, once it's finally settled and people get back to work, there's a drop in ridership. Uh, and given the yeah. funding formula, for instance, gas tax money and things of this nature, uh, that's that could be a real problem for the city. Absolutely, and I, you know, I'm a firm believer uh, that uh, first of all, we, we need to make sure that we, uh, that uh, workers are getting value in regards to the work they do. We need to also understand that uh, uh, there it, it is a very challenging uh, climate for many of our uh, drivers, for example transit system to provide that service on a day-to-day basis and if anyone recognizes those challenges i think this council does so we certainly want to uh, reflect that in compensation benefits and, and many other uh, uh, programs for the transit workers so when you look at uh, an envelope uh, of dollars i mean it doesn't just it's not talking about this there's, there's costs for many changes there's benefits uh, pensions whatever the uh, is in the envelope uh, so we need to understand that uh, the complete package there's a cost to that and it's not just wages uh the comments i've, I've seen from eric tuck who is of course the head of the union the uh, atu uh, local 107 here in the hamilton area uh suggests that when it comes to wages they he says that they seem to be about three or four dollars an hour difference uh in what the city's offering and what the union is looking for here that's that's a pretty wide gap yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I can't get into the. De- I mean, I'm, first of all, uh, I have the greatest respect for uh, uh, Eric, and I'm not going to uh, get in the media and start negotiating uh, public. It's not my role. Uh, uh, we have a very uh, strong team that we're confident in, and uh, we get reports uh, uh, back from that committee, and they give us updates on a regular basis. So, uh, I, I can tell you right now uh, that uh, uh, the council has the full confidence in our negotiating team uh, as, as we stand today. So. Uh, all that micro work will be done to them. Uh, I'm not clear what these differentials are, but I can tell you when you take if they're comparing it to Toronto or something, perhaps that's the case. But when you compare it to uh, all the other workers in this community, maybe not. Council is. I just want to uh, be clear here, so our listeners understand the process. Uh, council is giving your negotiating team directions as to what you want to see happen here. You, you're not at the table, and you're not into the minutia of, of the back and forth. But if there's something substantive, either pro or con, they report back to council. Is that right? Yes, and they, and they have, and they've given us uh, uh, most recent uh, updates. Uh, and I know that the, the union's going to uh, do everything they can to squeeze as much out of this, uh, uh, this you know, this envelope as they can, and I don't blame them. Uh, that is their job. Uh, but at, at some point, uh, we recognize that uh, there's a, res- a very strong result on, on, on uh, both sides, and it hopefully you come to, uh, to an agreement. That's how it works. So it's, it's, it's testing that will and, and, and understanding the... Uh, the consequences and circumstances around it. So right now, I can tell you get frequent uh, updates from our negotiating team. I can tell you the direction was given, and I can tell you that the, uh, the, the council's resolve, the council behind uh, the, the promise in which we set, 
uh, are very strong. In the past, when you've seen these negotiations, uh, and I understand you can't get into to the details about money and, and the back and forth. That's that's negotiating that goes on behind closed doors. It's not done in public. I understand that, and I respect that. But do you get the sense from the, the impact and the feedback you're getting from your negotiating committee that this is resolvable? I mean, you've got before the, 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 the possible strike date, which is about two and a half weeks away from here, that, that's a lot of time during a negotiating process right now. Uh, do you have a comfort level that, that you're going to be able to find some semblance of a deal? Well, I'm always, always cautious, cautiously uh, optimistic. I think the council is as well, but at the, at the end of the day, we'll get updates and... Uh, and uh, you know, uh, as it comes, we'll we'll make decisions. But right now, I can tell you that, that there's a really strong resolve. I might, I might make this put this message out to the union and to the community. If they think there's a separation between the team that's negotiating uh, and the council, uh, there is none. Well, we'll see how it goes over the next couple of weeks. Hopefully, there's going to be some good news on this front as well. Uh, Terry, as always, thanks so much for the time today. Thank you, Bill. That's uh, Terry Whitehead, of course, the uh, West uh, Mountain Councillor. Uh, who's been involved in a number of these negotiations. Actually, on both sides of the table, before his political career, he was uh, a negotiator for the union as well, back up in his hometown. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.